Greetings, journeyers, and welcome back to another episode of Read Keeper's Journey. I'm excited about this episode because it's going to delve into the whole plot of the story and why the kids are actually in this weird world. Last episode, Michael had a hissy fit because Xylon turned out to be Trindok, who he'd been searching for and had been traveling with them for a week. He accused Zoe that she knew Trendok was with them the entire time, which didn't go over well. Now, back to the story. Chapter 45 With poise and grace befitting of the second keeper of the staff, Zoe entered her chambers with her head held high. Her fellow maidens wordlessly flowed in behind her, taking defensive and scouting positions in the ridiculously large room. Two warriors split off and checked the two side rooms that consisted of her sleeping quarters and washing chambers, both of which were larger than her entire home in the first tree. Zoe walked to the nearest couch, picked up the brightly colored cushion, and screamed into it. That, that, she didn't know what he was, but she knew she was done with him. He had needled her, plagued her, and teased her, teased her. Like, like she was one of those idiotic skirts that flirted about the city, as if she would even dream of laying a pomegranate at his feet. She removed her face from the pillow, took a very deep breath, buried her face, and screamed again. Oh, he would pay. When she became queen of this atrocity that they called a city, she stopped. But she wouldn't become queen. There was no prince to marry. The treaty would disintegrate with the death of the king, who, by the look of him, may not be far off. And with no bond between the kingdoms, the threat of war returned. She replaced the pillow. At least she was finally done with that, that man? Could it be true? Was Michael not a Hyperborean after all? But instead, it didn't matter. He had been a beetle gnawing at her since the day they met. Now that she had finally fulfilled Mother's request to deliver him to Roe Penmon, she could shed him like an old leaf. She turned to Callista. There was a change there. Her sister was not the same person she left weeks ago. Why are you here? Zoe asked. Callista jerked and bowed her head slightly. I was tricked. Zoe closed her eyes and nodded in realization. The request, she said. She had seen Stacy Reed's braids with the interwoven ribbons, but had not taken the time to think it through. The girl must have asked for the link for the purpose of the request, and her dear sweet sister had no choice but to grant it. Clever. Yes, Clistus said with the faintest hint of pride. How did you discipline her? I made her walk. It was Zoe's turn to feel pride. Her sister was caring, but she was far from soft. I always hated that. I know. That's how I thought of it. I chose a reprimand that you greatly loathed. I have forgotten myself. Michael Reed picks at my bark. Zoe apologized. Congratulations, sister, on your first Sema. I wish to sit with you in water and sun and hear all that you delve from the binding. But we must set it aside now. Zoe gave her sister of blood and braid a warm hug and kissed both of her cheeks. And because it was the most intimate gesture she knew, she touched Callista's forehead with her own. 
My heart is full of pride and joy for you, she whispered. Zoe turned to her armed maidens perched throughout the room, their eyes scanning for threats. Our sister has surpassed us. She has become Exano. May she reap what she sows. The Metaf gave a quick, singular shout of approval and returned to their overwatch. The celebrating must wait. They were in foreign woods filled with unknown threats. Zoe turned to the dark-haired Metaf guarding the door. She was the smallest of Zoe's team, but her talents did not rest in the strength of her arms. Kith, you sing farther than any of us. Can you reach mother? Zoe felt a mental pressure from Kith as she explored the distance with her mind. They all carried the heart of the song among them. The song not only connected them, but also unified them. It was a bond on the mind and the heart, shared by all Metaf, but with all things, the talent waxed and waned depending on the singer. Zoe felt the pressure slide off her and reached to the city wall, and then farther when it disappeared into the distance of her mind. The mousy girl nodded. I require a quiet post to sing from, but yes, I can reach her. Use my bedchambers. Adrista, Paulus, will you ensure she will not be disturbed? Kith, tell our mother. The treaty is nulled. The hyperborean king failed to produce an heir. Tell her, and Katha has fallen, but don't say how. I refuse to believe that she would take her own life. Tell her Trendok is found and lost, and that we await her wisdom. Kith nodded and made her way to the room, followed by her escorts. Zoe turned to the remaining troop. With or without the treaty, we will not give these people an excuse of war. No one may bring harm to a Hyperborean, even to the threat of death. We will not shed blood, even though they richly deserve it. Despite the unanimous grunt of agreement she received, Zoe knew her companions did not like the order. They had all bled in the war that the Hyperboreans brought to their roots. They would obey, grudgingly, but they would. She sat down with Callista to help ponder their next move. The leaves were in the wind, and no one, no matter how wise or powerful, would know where they would settle. Chapter 46 Chasing the screams, Michael was halfway across the room and grabbing his sword before anybody else could react. He had started to move before the wailing even reached his ears. Heather had just begun describing their harrowing escape from the enormous monster bulls when something began to pull at the cuts on his face, spurring him into motion. Something bad was going on down the hall. Michael sprinted to the door, but not before he caught Bear's expression. Despite the pounding of his heart, Michael almost laughed. A flash flood of emotions crossed the enormous teenager's face as he tried to keep from dropping the platter of food on his lap. Michael saw surprise, hunger, and frustration skitter across his friend's hairy face. Failing to save the tottering tray or simply giving up trying to, Bear stood and shoved half a baguette into his mouth and grabbed two apples before propelling himself after Michael. Bear had grown so quickly in the last few weeks that Michael wondered if there was such a thing as second puberty or if he suffered from a hormone imbalance like Andre the Giant. A wave of worry for his friend washed over Michael but was instantly swept away by the screams that pulled him into the corridor. The cries of pain continued to grow in volume and intensity. The longer they went on, the more he felt pressure growing in the back of his mind. Long ago and far away in the tree, 
he remembered silencing a chorus of voices in his head. A voice now shrieked from where he had mentally walled them off. He was thankful for the barrier, otherwise he too might be shrieking in agony. Michael reached for his sword hilt and hissed. It burned, but without heat. The weapon seethed in his hand. As he crossed the threshold of the dryad's chambers, a blanket of darkness, no, of nothingness, sucked the air from the room. It was here, the unthing, and it felt to Michael that his sword knew it. The weapon felt alive in his hand. Michael looked down, almost expecting to see a snake thrashing in his grip. Since his vision of the smithy, Michael had come to believe the sword lived in some fashion, and that they shared a connection. Even now, there was no mistaking that he could feel the weapon's outrage bleed through his fingers and ribbon up his forearm. The room's occupants looked as if they were trying to move through some viscous liquid. He yanked his blade free, tossing its sheath aside. As soon as the sheath left his hand, it too moved in slow motion, as if it floated down in a pool of water. Michael half expected air bubbles to stream from it as it drifted to the floor. His eyes sought and found Zoe. Her trademark red braids whipped outwards as her head spun incrementally. A dozen Amazons reached for their bows and knives with the same submerged-like movements. He couldn't see it, but the nothingness filled the room. His blade practically vibrated with hatred for it. The scream came again, like a broken clarion that grew shriller, no longer warning of imminent danger, but shrieking in terror. A girl stumbled out of a nearby chamber, hands clutched to her head, and wisps of blackness, of unness, streamed from between her fingers. Michael slid into a fighting pose, sword raised, but he didn't know where to strike. The weapon longed to attack the evil that filled the air, and it grew frustrated that it had no target. The blade pulled at him, wanting to strike the little girl. Michael resisted its urge to attack blindly. A fresh wave of heat poured from the blade, so much so Michael was surprised his arm wasn't engulfed in flames. A hand fell on his shoulder, warm and calm. Michael's eyes flicked up and saw Zylon, or Trindok, or whatever his name was, by his side, glowing faintly with a blue nimbus. Be still, Michael Reed. One misstep, and you may unravel us. Trendok strode forward, unaffected by the slowness that seemed to pull at the tips of Michael's hair. He seemed to increase, but without changing shape or form, almost like he became more real than his surroundings. Michael gritted his teeth and forced his feet not to retreat from the immense power flowing from the Anani. Oh, Amabilia, Sahidrel, I did not know the depths of your anguish. Trindok said, touching the screaming Metef as tears streamed down her face. I am sorry. The burden is too much to bear alone, and I was not there to shoulder the weight. Trindok reached and grasped the ethereal black vapor that twisted between the girl's fingers as she clutched at her head. But you, he growled, you foulness, you shall gain no parley and receive no mercy. His arms nodded and twisted, and the vapor shattered in his grasp. I rebuke you. The girl howled, making a deep, guttural sound that was far worse than the screams. The essence of her pain reverberated through Michael. An image of fangs and twisted joints flashed across his mind's eye. The tortured girl collapsed into Trendok's arms as all remnants of unness fled the room. Time resumed. Arrows were notched. Scabbards were cleared. And Zoe finished whirling about. 
Trindok held the little warrior in his arms, dwarfing her tiny form. A trickle of blood escaped her ear. He turned around and looked at Michael, drew a heavy sigh. It is time we spoke, Michael Reed. The moment was broken by Kin skidding to a halt at the door, followed by the rest of his friends slamming into his back. Trindok carried the girl into a side room as Michael motioned his friends to sit. He made sure not to make eye contact with Zoe, still embarrassed by his temper, and now that Trindok had appeared, his tantrum seemed all the more childish. The gray-haired Hyperborean returned and assured Zoe that the girl would recover and then took his place in the center of the room. He was still Xylon in Michael's eyes. He wore the same clothes, shirt, pants, and jacket, which stood out from the toga-wearing occupants of the palace. Apart from his staff, he looked the same, but there was an unmistakable change to him. He now radiated a presence. Michael could feel the power coming off him, and he seemed older, but not like a person eroded by age, but by someone who attained strength from the years, like an oak set by a stream. Michael blinked. It was the same feeling he got when he talked to the Metaf mother, Hippolyta. Even though they were from entirely different races, the two were so much alike that they could be brother and sister. With everyone settled, his friends on one side, and the dryad set about in defensive positions, scanning their surroundings, Trendok began to speak. Thousands of years ago, the Gigantis, what you Metaf call the Lysiphim, the people of the water, they brought my people to this land of the New World. They came before the division, fleeing men and the evil that they wrought. Over time, my people, the Hyperboreans, eventually began to build towns, while some of their brothers continued to seek the depths and solitude of the wilderness. I was comfortable with neither choice, and so I became one separate from both sides, traveling and experiencing the land that eventually led me to be bound with it. But that is another story. Over many years, I watched towns become cities, and their quest for safety and security grew into greed. They became covetous of the Metaf forest, which led to war between your two races and, my greatest regret, the creation of the despised, the Exotheneo. The Gigantis traveled the coastlines, helping the Hyperborean establish waterways and ports, teaching them the ways of water. Eventually, the Gigantis grew restless and left to continue their exploration of the world. But they left their Anani, Amabilia Sahitrel. She had united herself to the land and thus could not leave her people. There she remained for centuries, alone and forgotten. I traveled to see her several times, but it is painful to journey outside my border. A thing from your world, Michael Reed, a thing that does not belong in any world, use Amabilia's despair to trick her and to invade her body. It is that thing that brought you here. But why? Heather asked. I believe it wants you to free it from its trap. Possessing Amabilia's body subjugates it to her limitations. It cannot fully leave the land the body is bound to, and its power is greatly limited beyond its boundary. It is my belief that it needs you to break the bond. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, we're just kids, Michael said, hearing the feebleness of the argument. Just being a kid never protected him from an abusive father. Besides, he was staring down the barrel of 18. In a few months, he wasn't technically going to be a kid anymore. What he wanted to say was 
I don't care, and I just want to go home. But even that statement rang hollow. In truth, he was tired, and he just wanted to be alone. He wanted to go back to reading his adventures and not living them. Joan of Arc was only 19 when she was burned at the stake, Michael, Heather said. That's comforting, Ken said. We are not allowed the opportunity to choose which burdens are laid at our feet. Trindock said to Michael, shedding a little of his gruff manner, Our choice is to whether or not we will bear the burden. You are from outside this world. As to why you, you have no natural limitations because you are not naturally here. The moment you stepped foot in this world, it began trying to make sense of you and try to fit you into its mold. Michael looked at Steve and Bear. They were still his friends. Steve still had his witty banter and his laissez-faire approach to life. And Michael couldn't imagine Bear being anything but gentle and thoughtful. But there was no mistaking the transformation the two were undergoing. Ken even looked different, not as drastic as the other two. He had taken on an olive tone like the Hyperboreans, and his ears seemed a little more pointed, but not drastically so. But coupled with Trindock's statement, the change was evident. Michael's hand drifted up to his ear. Was it pointier? What do you mean by limitations? Can I fly? Steve asked. Who is to say? But I wager you have a better nose and more insight into structure of rock than any living lectoc, Steve, boss. You could rival even the Anani car with your innate ability. Trindock said, Cool. I'm like a superhero, Steve said, and Heather patted him on the shoulder in a gesture that said, Yes, dear, you're a superhero. But it is unclear for how long. Trindock continued, ignoring Steve. I believe that the more you change, the more you are limited until the transformation is complete when our world fully claims you. If we change, can we still go home? Stacy asked. I don't know, little one. Then let's do it. Michael stood. Send us back. I cannot. I am not the one who brought you. It is she who blocks the way. Then find a way around. Make a new way. I don't care. Michael could see where this was going, and he didn't like it. All this talk about a bad guy and their sudden and incredible powers and a blocked way home only led to one conclusion. We have to defeat the evil Anani, Heather said. Yes. And there it is, Michael thought, almost throwing his hands up in frustration. No, we won't do it. This isn't our problem. This isn't our fight. He turned to his friends. This isn't even our world. Do you understand how crazy this sounds? How can we fight a thing that could punch a hole in reality? Watch your tone, Reed Keeper. You speak before an Anani, Zoe said. No, you don't have a say in this, Zoe. You didn't even believe me when I said I didn't belong here. And guess what? Wait for it. I don't belong here. None of us do. Go fight your own battles. She's after me, Michael. Heather said, she's been chasing me. And if we try to hide here or somewhere else, she's going to find me. If she wants us so badly, why didn't she just bring us to her? Michael asked. She wants us weak, Bear said. We've been in a race this whole time. She wants us strong enough to use, but weak enough where we can't defeat her. Ken stepped forward. Are you saying that if we get there before she's ready, we could win? Bear shrugged. 
Trindock nodded. Therein lies the hope. But we don't have any power, Michael said, knowing full well that it was a lie. He had first felt it at the Battle of the Exotheneo, when he had almost died. There was rage, but there was always rage seething under his skin now, pulling at his face. But there was something else, beyond the rage. A peaceful power. The breath of life, he thought. Callista stood. Heather Shackelford does. I have felt it. She slew the Calcatori with my arrow. Uh, I think she saved Callista's life at the river, Ken added. Remember, Stacy, the bright light and the flash? I bet that was Heather. It was, uh, it was pretty crazy. Ken ended lamely. He looked down at his shoes and missed the hint of blush that covered Callista's cheeks. Michael didn't miss it, and it looked to him that neither did Zoe, although her blank expression did nothing to suggest if she approved or not of the attraction. If Heather goes, I go, Steve said to no one's surprise. I'm with Steve. Bear shrugged at Michael's look. I don't think we have much choice, Ken added. We have to do something, Michael, Stacy said. We just can't, like, sit here and do nothing. With each declaration, Michael's heart sank. He couldn't abandon his friends, but he couldn't jeopardize his sister's safety. Sure, he could order her to stay here, but he knew it wouldn't stick. She would just come after him again, and blindly chasing after him might put her in harm's way. Heather may say it's after her, but I'm the one with the cuts on my face. If it's after her, then why did it mark me? Is it hedging its bets? His thoughts whirled. Maybe I could take Stacy back to the tree. We should be safe there, shouldn't we? But if Trindock's right, the unthing would continue to send things after us, hurting us to it. No matter what I do, Stacy will still be in danger. Maybe the best bet is to hit it by surprise. What did the woman with the eyes say? Peace. She asked me if I would give her peace, and I said no. How fast can you get us there? Can you, I don't know, teleport us to its border? Michael asked. The mood of the room changed. Michael hadn't noticed the amount of tension in the air until it was released. Almost imperceptibly, Trindock's face relaxed. Yes, but we need an open space. It will have to be done outside the city. I doubt that Ladrone wants you to leave. That includes you, Zoe. He's a schemer, and I'm sure he's already planning on how to use you girls to his advantage. I do not fear him, Zoe said. Apparently watching one's tone didn't apply to the fiery redhead. No one said anything about fear, Trindock admonished. But you wouldn't want to give him any excuse for war. More than he's already fabricating, that is. I know ways out of the city that will allow us to escape without confrontation. I made sure of it when these walls were built. Not tomorrow, but the next, is Nocte Infernum. We can slip out during this so-called revelry in my name. It's like Halloween on steroids, Heather said when her friends exchanged looks. Will you transport us as well? I fear for Kith's health, and my mother knows nothing of the lack of an heir nor the king's threat to march into our lands again, Zoe asked. Trindock nodded. I must go with my Sima, Callista said. She gave Zoe an apologetic look, who nodded after a moment. I will guide them, Zine said, standing. She shrugged off Zoe's look. It is either you or I. There is not another here that has traveled to the Lysifum castle. I would like to continue their training, 
especially if they're headed for a fight. The boy's drill instructor, Canaeus, said. Very well, Zoe said with a sigh. Anyone else? Good. Trindok said, striding to the door. We will meet here at dusk during Nocte Inferno, and we will see an end to this business once and for all. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to hunt down my protege and see if I can get him to stop crying. Steve laughed so hard he snorted. Well, that's all for this episode, Journeyers. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did writing it. I've been dropping hints throughout this entire story about the kids' connection to the power and also to the, the how the world's changing them. Um, and it's really fun to actually be able to say it out loud now and be like, this is really what's happening. There's a lot of information in here, so you might want to go back and re-listen to it and catch everything. Uh, next episode, the king comes face-to-face with Michael. They have a talk. And Trindok kind of explains and delves deeper into the mystery of the sword and how it affects Michael and Michael's connection to the unthing. So, until then, and as always, thank you for listening and be good to one another.